0: Hello, I'm Leslie Riddich, a Scottish journalist and director of Nordic Horizons, a policy group that's been taking Nordic experts over to speak in the Scottish Parliament for the last 12 years, though the last couple of years our meetings have mostly been online. The material in this podcast comes from an event held shortly after the COP26 meeting in Glasgow in November of 2021, But it couldn't be more relevant today as the whole of Europe is facing a cost of living crisis, much of it driven by the escalating costs of energy, much of that obviously because of the war in Ukraine. But there were pre-existing problems, particularly in Scotland, over our energy use and the fact that, for example, 85% of homes in Scotland use gas for heating, whilst practically none of our Nordic neighbours do. Now, just take that startling fact alone. What's going on? What can we learn? And which model might we want to adapt? Just on that question of heating, the information and the history and the anecdotes you're about to hear from three speakers from Denmark, Sweden and Norway are absolutely fascinating. So that's the backdrop for this podcast. I hope you enjoy it. We're just going to try and ask each contributor to just start off by saying what one thing they thought was a positive that you could take from COP26 and what was the biggest negative. Soren?
1: I'm not a usual COP, COP, what do you call it, participant. It it was actually my first COP meeting uh, ever uh, because I avoid uh, big uh, groups of people in in big uh, top-down political arenas because I don't think I have a say there really. Um, But I I must admit, I met a lot of very interesting people and and I had a lot of networking exercises there. So I was there for the force to uh, attend a big uh, session with the First Nations from Canada with indigenous uh, clean energy, the ICE program, which was really nice. And it, it reflects very much what I do. So I left and went to Oban and took the ferry to Moll. And, uh, and I went out to see people I knew on mall. And we had a meeting that we should have been to Iona, but it was too windy. It was like 42 meters per second. It was really, really windy. And, and out there, we talked about relevant things as how, how do we feel? What's life like? How do we survive uh, being left alone on small islands when, when the big guys are talking in Glasgow? And so we had a COP meeting in a meeting house in, in Kintyre. Uh, where we organized almost everything and had a really good time and we finished with uh, some really good Scottish uh, shepherd's pie and some whiskey and 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 I, th- I felt good about it and then I could go back to to the cop meeting uh, on the Monday and prepare for receiving the climate leader award and actually feel that I was in Scotland not in, in in a global UN network meeting so all in all it was a really good meeting for me and a nice occasion to uh, to talk to friends and feel a little bit connected to the to the big guys' uh, convention.
0: I hesitate to ask for any negative because that is great to hear.
1: Oh, I should, but, should I say some negative? <laughs> well, if you can bring yourself to. I think, hmm, the, the interesting thing is the separation between the meeting and and, and, and the people of in, out in the streets of Glasgow. I think it's 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 not so nice that we have all like a lot of young people on the streets, and then at the same time we have all these very important people talking um, and and negotiating uh, details in a big plan that has to be much more effective and much faster, and then listen to the young people saying and, and and allow them to say blah blah blah, which I I think is right. The young people should do that. They should object to 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 the big strategic. Meetings here also, but I sometimes need a, a stronger connection also. So I think it was a pity that we couldn't have a, an open session morning.
0: Yeah, and that's that's a tremendous to imagine you flying, getting off to Oban, then Mull, and somehow back to Kintyre.
1: Mull is not an independent municipality, they don't have their own government. They don't, uh, I mean, they belong to Argyll Butte, uh, the, the, the county. And I think they feel a little bit like they are not in business in their own community. And, and that is, I mean, they might be connected, but the ferry starts from Oban and go to mall, mall in the morning and it, it ends in, in Oban also. So it's not made for the island, but for people from, from the mainland to go to the island to help these poor people where we have, we have managed to make the ferry start on Samsur, my island, and end in the mainland. So I can participate in meetings in the mainland and go back in the evening because the ferry belongs to Samsur, not to the mainland. There's those little things that we're talking about. How do we make an independent society based on what do you call it to be masters of our own house, so to speak? Yes. And, which they also do in, in, in Ake where they are not connected and they have to do it where we, there's a lot of other things here that is similar to being disconnected or connected.
0: Tora what did you think then, just looking at, at COP26, negative mm-hmm. and positive?
2: Yes, uh, thank you, Leslie, and also thank you for the invitation. So um, I actually have more positive and negative things on the list. I was actually quite positively impressed by the meeting, just to say that uh, for the start. So I think the most important thing now is that we see that countries are stepping up their ambitions. So um, if you go before the Paris Agreement, so people are talking about business as usual, that was a 45 degrees world, a warmer world, so now we are talking about, so we are coming close to two degrees, so before the, before the Glasgow meeting, uh, just by looking at the current policies, the countries would to towards, or the world would head towards 2.7 degrees, but if you just take all the pledges in Paris and also take all the pledges when it comes to becoming uh, climate neutral in 2050 or 60 or seven, 70, then we are actually now below two degree warming. So, so, so we see that more and more countries are stepping up their ambitions and also, um, for instance, one of the results of the Glasgow meeting was that there will be a new, what to say, new, new pledges given already next year. So, so that should have been in 2020, 2025, and now it will be already 2022. So, so we see that there is the ambitions of becoming or stepping up. So I think that's the main, I would say that's number one good positive thing with the, with the Glasgow meeting that we see more and more countries are stepping up ambitions and also when it comes to stock taking and all these things. And the one uh, number one negative thing is that there is still not enough uh, finances there, so when it comes to finance, um, mitigation, finance adaptation in, in the developing world, then there is, we are still far from far from the goal of, for instance, 100 billion US dollar per year to, to finance uh, technology development and mitigation in, in the in developing countries. So So just to summarize, number one is that we see that or the positive thing we see that the world is no stepping up ambitions. The negative thing is that we still need lots of money on the table to really get the developing world also to, to, to follow. Up
0: can i ask you victoria um sweden has recently had quite a political well an interesting political couple of weeks where you've got a new prime minister um social democrat who essentially lost the budget that she tried to put through then lost the green party from her coalition and is now in power but having to be in power with a budget That was created by the right, essentially, in the the Swedish parliament. Now, I'm explaining all that not just for our viewers because it's quite fascinating, but how does that impact on what Sweden is going to do? Because if the budget must be kept too, is it one that really puts a lot of money into the the transitions that you need? Um, Well, Good that you point this out. It's, uh, we've had a couple of very,
3: uh, very hectic weeks and, and interesting weeks politically. Uh, so Magdalena Anderson was voted into office today again for the second time in one week. And she's going to present her government tomorrow with her new list of, of ministers. Um, that will be an entirely social democratic government as opposed to before when they had the environmentalist party alongside them. The budget posed by, by the, the right wing uh, obviously does not put as much emphasis into um, subsidies to, uh, to renewables as a left wing or a more social democratic and, and, and uh, environmentalist budget would have. Um, but hopefully, as I said, this is only 10 months going forward now and um, we'll see what happens.
0: This fall. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Now, listening to all of that is Keith Baker, um, um, who is our Scott Keith. um Just you can reflect on what has been said so far and add your own thoughts. And actually, what really strikes me is, um, perhaps our Nordic contributors are just awfully polite, and they really are. I think, <laughs> or. They've, they are, are really not as critical of COP26 as most of us, really, who were quite engaged with the, the issue, sitting right here.
4: I know. Um, and thanks for inviting me. And thanks for, um, to every of the panelists showing up. And I'm sat here thinking I'm going to be the negative one. Um, I actually I was really struggling to think of something positive. Um, but actually, Greta, outside getting sweary um with the strikers i thought was you know my highlight um you know somebody with such a high profile rate uh, you know supporting the strikers and, and highlighting the need that you know we need green jobs we need fair pay for the you know for the refuse workers for the rail workers this is something you know one of the many things i will criticize the SNP over just as much as any other party um, and of course we have to throw the greens into that now they're in coalition so yeah greta's sweary speech that went around the world was brilliant Um, On the negatives, um, I'm going to call it and say I think we're now heading towards at least 2.4 degrees C average temperature rise. Um, I've been in touch with um, Bill McGuire, who's a friend of mine down at UCL, um, who contributed a a fantastic quote to the 21 for 21 climate actions campaign that Commonweal put out over the summer. Um, The two of us, I think, and plenty of others are getting really, really quite depressed about this situation. Um, And in Scotland, you know, we now have a situation where... Um, I'm sat here re- responding to the the consultation on the heat networks delivery plan, which is an absolute car crash legislation delivered by people without sufficient technical knowledge. Um, you know, we've been telling we've been telling the Scottish government for years that they need to follow the Danish model, and we'll, we'll come to this when we talk about district heating. Um, but there is just seems to be a, a lack of willingness a lack of capacity a lack of drive we now have a situation where the scottish greens by supporting the hydrogen action plan which talks about blue hydrogen are actually now supporting the continued extraction of fossil fuels from the north sea so i'm sorry guys i'm i'm really really struggling to find positives and i've been you know dare i say struggling a bit with my mental health because of it. it's i'm sat looking at working group the working group 3 report which for the ipcc which obviously i can't talk about but what we've got is a reliance on future technologies. You know, we might as well just say, well, Fusion's going to come and solve the problem in five years, like we've been doing for the last however many decades. So sorry to be negative, but that's pretty much where I'm standing on the thing at the moment.
0: Well, it's always good to have somebody provoking, you know, the, the, there's just loads of issues. I just wonder uh, if we could have everybody just, you know, all of you, Soren, Tora and Victoria, just come in on what you want there. It. Some of it might have been difficult for you to understand because, uh, Keith was referring to S- Scottish uh, powers like, for example, the Heat Network's delivery plan. You might know that uh, in Scotland, we have only 5% of homes on, on district heating. And that might be very related to the fact we have 85% of heating delivered by gas, which mostly comes from Norway, thanks, to where you guys are smart enough to not use it. Um, now, That's one problem, and it's one that uh, Denmark has been very much to the fore in trying to... Well, the district heating systems from Denmark are being quoted by everyone as what we should be going for. But actually, also in Sweden, there is small, smart grids just of a couple of buildings which are actually becoming producers of energy. They can even be charging up electric cars. Um, so I wonder if we could just stop and go through these things a bit one by one, because it would help us a lot. Our big challenge is this question of heating, because at the moment people are being left uh, to have to finance that whole change themselves with yet another issue. Uh, whole set of individual heating systems instead of a big shift to district heating. So can we just stick with that question of heating for a moment and just ask Soren, first of all, um, I mean, how does it does it work in Denmark?
1: So when we decided to um, to cut the dependency on imported oil and coal from outside in our energy uh, policy from I mean back from the 70s when we had the oil crisis, uh, Denmark actually decided to, to to work on a policy that made us independent from imported fuel from outside. So that was very pragmatic attitude to this. And and say so we have a corporate ownership model that has been used since the Vikings, where where people can get together and invest in in infrastructure or things that serves the interest of the common. And, and, and district heating is exactly uh, kind of that tool or instrument to do that. So instead of importing fuel from outside, we looked around on Samsø and many other places of Denmark to see what could replace heat, uh, uh, fuel like oil and coal. And that was straw, wood chips, it could be waste. I mean, resources that we had flying around uh, in our neighborhood that was either composted or just Uh, evaporated into thin air or producing a problem for us in dumps and other places here also. So that was actually a very early start on using local resources at a very reasonably low cost uh, by uh, putting in installing a piping system where you have like a main pipe in a village and a central boiler where you can burn all these fuels or either or of these fuels and circulate the hot water to all the houses and take out the individual heating system. We, we have been able to produce that cheaper than imported fuel from outside, which is paying for the cost of it. And then we have a common maintenance program, common insurance and other things. Also. So there's a lot of ripple effects that is uh, helping the local community. And on top of that, another ripple effect is that when you import fuel from outside, then you have to earn the money locally and buy an imported product. Where here... We, we, we pay less for the same product, but we buy it from the next door neighbour who then pays tax in the local community. And we have a circular economy that will help and grow the local economy because it also produces jobs and stuff like that. So so this is a very typical Danish pragmatic attitude to change, that instead of having a centralised big system where you serve a, a lot of purposes with one one supplier, we have a multiple faceted supplier system where we use local resources to replace something that is very expensive from outside that that, that was a quite short version of, of of the system. I don't know if that is too was a
0: that was a masterpiece of clarity actually. Um, what, what's interesting there because I see there's a question from Helen about is there a challenge uh, to deliver district heating in remote and rural settings, I mean, clearly not. I mean, Egg have got their little off-grid system. It's not a district heating system, but but you do actually have district heating on the island of Samso. What about just you know on the mainland? How do you cope with just one house here, one house there? You can't. There must be places that district heating cannot reach. I,
1: actually, from the very beginning, it was it was typically farmhouses that started this also because they had they had s- extra supply of straw or, 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 or biomass of some kind, cuttings from from fences and woods and stuff like that. They, they didn't know how to use. And they could buy a modern furnace where they could make their own little individual heating system where they also could heat the, the stables or to dry grain or hay and stuff like that. So it, they could they could supply just one house. But then they bought some bigger boilers and then they could supply the next house as well. And then the, the, the limit of this is also, there's a limit to how how long a distance you can have between two houses, because then the heat loss in the pipe will be too significant. And then you have to make a new system when, when, when the, the length extends a certain, uh, certain capacity. And so we have a lot of different scales of, of this system. It can be one, three houses, it can be 100 houses, 500 houses or several thousand houses. So, so, so it's kind of the same thinking, but it, it, it scales with, with, with capacity and, 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 and distance and, and resources. God, and, and is... to, so, so today, what, who cannot be reached by this is using heat pumps. Because heat pumps are using electricity and electricity is produced from the nearby wind turbines. So we can use the electricity locally to produce the same kind of heat. And, and it doesn't need, it do, there's no heat loss in the pipe because you serve it by electricity. So, so we are working with a system we call uh, a District Heating Without Pipes kind of a wireless pipe system where they can pay the same per megawatt hour that, that they do on a water-based system, but they use electricity, but they don't own the facility, the, the heat pump. It's owned by the cooperative district heating system. So they just pay the same and the system will supply them with a heat pump instead of using imported fuel from outside. And and the reason for this is that we want to meet a very low carbon emission. Uh, so, so this is kind of the, our end goal to be carbon-free, uh, with the, within a, a decade uh, so we need to kind of cut down on carbon emissions in, in every source we can find
0: wow and just final question so we just completely understand how this is possible um is is all of that dependent on you having very big cables with the mainland to have that or not
1: no the district not, heating not the s- district
0: heating but the electricity okay.
1: well yes and no we are depending on big cables mainly because we are exporting a lot of electricity from our base, from local based wind turbines, because we put in a lot of extra capacity because we wanted to compensate for transport. So we have some really huge big ferries and the ferries are guilty of about 40 percent of the total CO2 emissions. So that's a heavy polluter. So, so before we have electric ferries or hybrid electric ferries, we have compensated for the diesel that, that the ferries are using but today we have a one of, of the ferries we have run is a hybrid electric ferry so we are g- gradually moving into a transport system where we are using the electricity from the wind turbines as well but in the beginning we needed the cable to export and compensate for the e- emission by producing co2 free energy and sell it to the main grid but 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 we want to get rid of that dependency and and sort of start using it locally um, when technology allows us to do it
0: Okay, wow. Uh, Torah, have you got thoughts on any of that? Um, Keith, you're going to have to come back in and be less gloomy at some point or else very gloomy because Scotland is so far from many of the component parts of what Soren described mm. there. But, um, I mean, you could pick up any of the other things that were mentioned, like blue hydrogen. Um, Tora, I don't know if you want to pick up on that because a lot of people are worried that the move towards hydrogen will actually be blue hydrogen, which really depends on fossil fuels continuing.
2: Mm-hmm um yeah i can say a few things about it so first of all it's, it's very interesting to hear what they have done at Samsur because it's it's really advanced and really it's it's really nice to hear so so for, for norway of course we have we are mainly m- most of our heating is based on electricity so we a hydropower so we are not we do not have much co2 emissions related to heating um, as as many other countries have so so what we are doing a lot in norway is to invest now into um, into um B- batteries, so batteries for ferries, batteries on, on other, uh, other uh, transports uh, offshore. We are, we are investing, of course, a lot into electrical cars. So that's so that's one place in the transport sector. And if we, if we look at the emissions in Norway, so uh, compared to all of our neighbors, for instance, Denmark, Sweden, UK, their emissions have, have gone down a lot since, for instance, 1990, while in Norway it's been more or less flat or even increased. If you look at the CO2 part of it. So that's mainly transport sector, and then it's oil and gas sector. So now, so what Norway is doing now is to invest a lot to try to make the transport go more and more on electricity, and also oil and gas exploitation should be more and more more and more driven by electricity. So, so, so we can get what you say not not clean not clean fossil fuel, but the production of fossil fuel will be without emissions and then um, what you mentioned with blue hydrogen is also one of the things norway is looking into because that is to use it's to use the gas from the north sea or from the barents it use gas and then is to to take out the co2 and, and that is being done with the, yeah, carbon carbon capture and also try to store, store the carbon in the North Sea. So Sonovi so is investing a lot into these kind of new technologies and some people believe this would be a few, there is a future in it. Other people are more are more negative to it. and I guess I will be somewhere in between. so it's, it may be something in the future, but, but I, I don't I don't really believe in to, believe in this blue hydrogen because it will be too expensive to produce. And also with the gas prices that we see now for instance it would be extremely expensive to produce blue hydrogen so, so i don't i don't think that would be a future for at least not for many.
0: i mean torre you, you know some people could say that norway is cutting a surprising number of corners really with this mm-hmm. because we have a big discussion about carbon capture since A plant was expected to go to the northeast of Scotland, and perhaps for political reasons, it went to strange places uh, in England instead. Um, But in that discussion, many people pointed out that carbon capture would only ever deal with something like one ten thousandth of the emissions. You know, it's a tiny, tiny thing. Mm -hmm. Now, has Norway somehow got a better system or is this just, you know, just for show?
2: No, there are many people that really believe in this. And uh, for instance, no, Norway is now investing quite a lot of money into a facility just west of where I'm living, so west of Bergen. And that is to take CO2 from, uh, so that's mainly from waste. Um, yeah, so, so places where you're burning waste and also places where you're producing concrete or cement cement factories. So that's where you have very large point sources. So the idea there is to take the carbon uh, yeah out of the out of the out of the yeah gases or the waste from these power plants and then to not power plant to these plants and then to bring it to this place west of Bergen and then send it out in the North Sea. So there is actually a facility that's that has been built. But as you say it's only a few at least for now it will only be a few places and it will only be a tiny fraction of the, the total emissions in Norway.
0: Okay and just to keep on the sort of Naughty mm-hmm. Norway theme mm-hmm. drilling. Um, I, I was not, I noticed that that there was agreement that the massive oil fields in Lofoten, the Lofoten Islands, there was agreement by the La- the party, the Labour Party, no, not to mm-hmm. drill. Mm-hmm. Which which actually, just to pick up the point Soren made, was partly because the local council there decided no, mm-hmm. and that's how powerful folks local councils are in Nordic countries. <laughs> but anyway, mm-hmm. I see now though, that the government is talking about, it's issued new licenses in the Barents Sea and it's still talking about drilling. So which mm-hmm. is it?
2: So we, uh, you are, you're right. So there is an area of Northern Norway, Lofot area Luf- Luf- that has you now been protected for oil and gas, so it's just been, yeah, at least not, not the current government and not the previous government, they will not look into this but but we we got a new government in september and actually today they agreed on the budget so that that's, that's so now we have a center center left government and they actually got an agreement on the, on the national budget with the with the socialist left party so it's it's quite far to the left but if you look if you look into the 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 policy for oil and gas exploitation then this the two the two what you said the two Flanks of the Norwegian um, um, politics, they are more or less the same. So, so, so it's it's not it's not the big the big parties in Norway. They more or less agree on the policy, and that is that we should, unfortunately, in my mind, we should still continue to look for new oil and gas fields. So, so there are some small parties that are against this, but the big Labour Party and the Conservatives, they both agree on that we should still continue to look for oil and gas.
0: But the, but the search will go on in, in areas like the Barents Sea, which will be more difficult to find oil than Lofoten, which for, for people who are trying to think in Scotland, our big mm. issue at the moment is the Cambo oil field near Shetland. Mm-hmm. And actually, the amount of, of uh, the, the barrels that could be in Lofoten are something like three, four times, five times more, even mm-hmm. than the enormous Cambo field, and that is not being drilled. It's much, much further north in new fields.
2: Mm-hmm. So the, the main reason for this Lofoten area is that it's the spawning ground for the cod, the cod uh, stock that also is, of course, an important thing for Norway. So, it's, so I think that, that, was the main, that was the main reason for this area being protected for oil and gas exploitation but 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 again uh, norway is one of the few countries in the world that still are pushing for oil and gas uh, in the arctic for instance and that's yeah. um, it, but it is a, it, it is a bit more and more discussion in norway also but so far both as i said both the two the two major parties in norway they both agree that we should we should continue to look for oil and gas it's um, yeah
0: do, do you realize that will have astonished most people in scotland what sorry do you realize that that knowing that Norway is drilling for oil in the Arctic will have astonished a lot of people in Scotland?
2: Yeah, it is. And it's also more and more difficult to actually come, come for instance, to the international negotiations and argue that there still should be room for new oil and gas fields in the north. And, um, and for instance, Norway got the fossil price of the day to Norway. So that was the first day. And that is because the Norwegian Prime Minister, he argued that there still should be room for Norwegian gas, for instance, in also in the transition towards renewable energy. Mm-hmm. So, so it's yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a difficult view to take, but still in Norway there is a political uh, majority that say we should still look for oil and gas. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, thank you for being so honest, uh, Victoria. Uh, do you do you want to just come in on anything, any of the debates you've heard there, and also on Keith's list of things that make him despair, is the nuclear fusion, the the ex- expectation that everything else will just be too difficult, too hard to deliver, and people will shift back to nuclear. Now, Sweden actually has about 40% nuclear energy, I think, in, in its mix. Uh, what do you think of that? Yeah,
3: well, um, well if, if I should start off with on the nuclear topic then, um, we have 30% uh, power production from nuclear power now uh, nowadays, I should say. We closed down two reactors a couple of years ago and we've already closed down uh, two. So uh, we're not standing as, as many as before. Sweden made a decision 150 years ago to invest in hydropower and that's, we're lucky today that we, we made that difficult decision. Nevertheless, it has a great impact on our environment. That's you know bottom line, you cannot discuss that. So from where, where we are sitting, I think we have many opportunities to choose other paths after nuclear power.
0: Yeah, I see on, on the chat. I don't know if, I, if we could just tempt fate here. Uh, Tor, your you start is, uh, is there. OK, Tor, can you unmute yourself and just ask the point that you had about nuclear? And we're not going to stay for long on nuclear, but just let's have this one.
5: Uh, yes, thank you. Leslie, uh, I'm involved in a group in the Highlands called Highlands Against Nuclear Transport that uh, has campaigned for many years to prevent the transport of nuclear waste 400 miles from Doonray in the far north of Scotland near Thurso down to Sellafield in Cumbria, which is the big nuclear waste dump in uh, in Great Britain. Uh, And um, they've spent 70 years trying to get it to work and they've never made it work yet. Uh, They've spent billions of pounds on it Uh, in about five or six different countries uh, and it's as far away from being a reality as it ever was. So so those are some of the reasons. And it also produces waste. People don't realize that nuclear fusion produces less radioactive waste but larger quantities. So you still have this waste problem of having to store. We have 500 tons of waste in the UK uh, and it's got to be stored underground is the proposal at the moment. The community in Cumbria, which is now uh, accepting uh, the, the, the uh, offer of, of placing it in uh, in their community in return for a, a one million pound bribe, so uh, that that waste has to last for a hundred thousand years. So we're opposed to fusion, and we're also opposed to uh, small modular reactors. This is another last gasp from the nuclear industry to uh, keep going with the nuclear industry, which is dead in its on its, on its heels uh, and is actually decreasing worldwide. So we have to get rid of nuclear.
0: Um, I wonder if I could bring Keith back in because you were the one that started all these balls rolling. Um, what, what have you made, made of what you've heard there?
4: Um, the Danes um, have got a fantastic history with district heating um, going back to the turn of the last century. And for some reason, the Scottish government continuously fails to learn from that Danish experience. Um, the Danes brought in a heat supply act in 1979 and that was the start of building up the the, the legislation where you where you basically um compels too strong a word but you, you mandate um people with excess energy to connect to um, buildings that can use it for heat this is something that the scottish government has continuously refused to implement um can i,
0: can I just see if, if the other if the other countries sweden because district heating It's like many things with the Nordic countries. You go to one Nordic country and think, gosh, that's interesting. Look how they do that. Then you go to another one and think, oh, look, they do it as well. And finally, you realize that the only weird thing is here that we don't do it. So, Victoria, how does it work with you? Yes, thank you. I was just going to write in in the chat, actually, about
3: Swedish Dixon District heating, um, we were pioneers in, dist- in central district district heating. We started in the 50s to uh, equip all major cities with district heating facilities. So, uh, as far as I understand it, in Denmark they're more uh, decentralised. In Sweden they are more centralised and bigger. So uh, we have them in Stockholm. We have them in Malmo. In all the, sort of all the major cities, we have large. CHP plants uh, mainly fired by by waste and biomass, uh, so are free, and for heating. And that the the one of the advantages obviously is that you detach the energy system, you, you separate heating from from the usage of of electricity. So in high peak situations, you can always use your power for what you need it for, and you you know that you always have. You're heating on, so to speak, in a cold country like ours, and in Denmark, same thing. So,
0: um, so yeah. what was it back in the fifties? Because unfortunately, we are where you were in the nineteen fifties, which is a pretty terrible yeah, realization. Don't, don't, don't hear that. <laughs>
3: yeah. So,
0: uh, yeah. We, what happened
3: uh, in the fifties? We started sort of um, refurbishing Sweden, so to speak. We uh, it was the era of of Folk-Hemmet. It was the era of of, of uh, building our modern way of life, so to speak. That's the
0: folk kennet, the folk, yes. the people's home, that yeah, whole the package of, of welfare yes. and everything.
3: Yeah, so that's when we crept the nut about CHPs and, and the district heating. And then, of course, the, with the oil crisis, uh, we exaggerated these plans because we had to um, disconnect from oil, basically. So the creation of district heating and centralised district heating in Sweden is, is one of the reasons why we are not dependent on oil eh, to the same extent as, as many other European countries.
0: And is this because Sweden, like Denmark, <clears throat> maybe <clears throat> maybe more so, didn't really have oil reserves like Norway and Britain? I mean, when, when you realised you were dependent on oil, with the oil crisis of the 1970s, you you must have realized your energy security was almost nil.
3: I imagine that was well, well, that was the reason. I, I was I was myself. I was born in the, in during the seventies. Uh, but as as I think soren said earlier, I mean, being dependent on importing expensive fuels for for your for your energy su- uh, supply in the long run that's very negative for for your economy. So that's one aspect. But then, of course, when we are here today, the other aspect is, of course, that we are uh, 98% fossil free in our electricity production Mm -hmm. in Sweden.
0: Yeah, Sören wants to come in. Can I I just... 99%. Yeah, Sören.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to, to comment that uh, it, it was not just oil crisis that made us uh, aware of the potential of district eating. It was also like a, a, a philosophy of good housekeeping where uh, all the main or the central power stations in the old days uh, from producing electricity from coal and oil were always almost entirely uh, situated near a big city. So there was a short distance from the power stations and the cooling, I mean, almost 30% of the production of electricity is uh, evaporated into thin air. You have these big cooling towers where you evaporate if you can't cool it with seawater and other things. also. So some smart Danes or Swedish or, or, or Scandinavian people were thinking that's not good housekeeping. So we, so we started piping the cooling uh, of, the, of the engines uh, or the generators of, 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 of electricity to the houses. Very inefficient in steel pipes, not, not, not insulated at all, but, but it was the beginning of district heating and it was working perfectly. So somebody saw that this is the potential, so maybe we should make entirely uh, uh, district heating and not just cooling of district heating. So it started kind of a, uh, with some smart guy thinking we, we, we shouldn't waste the, the, the hot water from cooling the, the generated into the sea, we should put, pump it into the houses and use it for heating. You have an electricity system where you can sell them electricity. You have a gas system where you can sell them gas. And you have other things here also. And I think we, we didn't have that. We, we have it more and more today because it, the market is more and more privatized. But we still have remaining uh, remnants of, of, a, of a democratic governed energy supply system. And I think that is kind of the key to, to sensible housekeeping, uh, what do you call it,
2: the philosophies uh, about how not to waste energy. The, just very brief. It's with Norway, so most houses in Norway they are they are heated by electricity, and then we have um, we have district heating for typically big customers like the hospital and university and uh, the big big companies. They are typically having having district heating, um, and then and then of course Norway, as I said, Norway is a big big exporter of of gas, and you said that 80, 85% of the of the gas consumption in in UK is from from Norway, or oh, is by gas. So it's um, uh, I, I think the, the way out for the way out for UK is that it should be wind driven, so offshore wind, for instance, could be one. It's, it's one thing that's coming more and more. So, so, so I I would guess that going from going from gas to electricity is perhaps a better way than to go via district heating. I, I I don't know. I'm not I'm not an expert in this, but uh, but at least. to to bring in electricity combined with heat pumps for instance it's a much more easy thing to install than to have a district heating in all houses but but again i'm i'm not expert at all
0: i suppose what i was trying to do was to tempt um, yourself or victoria into a political observation um, Mm -hmm. in that what soren seemed to be saying and what it looks like to us is that we have so little control of the levers in scotland because energy is controlled in westminster But in Britain, because energy was privatised by Margaret Thatcher, and now it's hard to drive strategy because it comes via private mechanisms uh, without uh, the kind of democratic input that Soren was describing. Um, I mean, as I understand it, uh, Equinor, which is the successor to Statoil, is still two-thirds owned by the Norwegian state. The um, hydro is owned by the municipalities by the state mm-hmm. does, does that not make is that not quite important it might be hard for you to imagine what it's like to be where we are now where everything is owned by private companies
2: yes yeah, so it certainly it is uh, like certain says, it is a way that the democracy can work also when it comes to energy so uh, we have a, we have a small very small crisis in northern because because electricity prices they have skyrocketed. The last uh, month or so, so so no no, it's really a political discussion about the energy system and what Norway should do to, for in, yeah, to keep energy prices low essentially for for, for 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 Norway. So so no no, it's actually a discussion about energy also in the domestic market, but but we have of course since as you say it's own it's owned either by the government or by the municipalities. So it's uh, it's much. It's much more the politicians can do in Norway, I guess, than what they can do in Scotland or or in Britain as such.
0: What is the future going to look like? Because you're closer to it. Norway has the highest amount of electric vehicles in the world per head of the population. Um, There's a lot of local energy. You're all nodding because this is a familiar idea to you. Um, I mean, how soon will it be that you've got right down to the units where... Energy isn't seen as a problem, but actually is being produced by every house and using batteries to the cars to cleverly store energy.
2: Yes, so we are going in that direction. So there is more and more smart, what should I say, um, smart steering of the of the of the electricity now. So people are installing devices on all, actually on everything. So if you are heating your water in your in your bathtub or when you are when you are when you are charging your battery in your electric car. So, so, this system is coming coming now. So, so there will so people have a yeah what's called a spot spot price. So then you can charge your you can charge your car when it's uh, when it's uh, cheap um, when it's a cheap uh, electricity, and then you can put it back on the grid when it's uh, expensive electricity. So this this is coming more and more. And of course, people are combining it with rooftop rooftop uh, solar panels and they're combining it with with other things. So, so it's so, so I think this is the future that's coming, over this smart, smart. Uh, I don't know what the name is, but this, the smart steering of, of how you are using energy and how you are producing energy. So then you get this pro, prosumers or you are consuming part of the day, and then you are producing or sending back to the grid the other parts of the day. So 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 it's absolutely the future, but the future with this with this smart smart steering. Yeah.
0: Right, Keith. I know you think that this is the future too. How how far is Scotland? What's the bits that have kept their structure or what do we need to be able to be getting towards this kind of thing?
4: Um, I'm going to try and tie a few things together. I mean, first of all, I noticed Anne-Marie's, sorry, Anne-Martin's comments um, about bulb energy just going under and all being brought into public ownership. Um, one of the problems we have is that under the the um, the expansion, you know, in the name of choice, in the name of consumer choice, we had this big rush of retail energy companies, companies that basically just buy energy from a generator and sell it onto a household, and somehow have to make a profit out of that, you know, by better customer service or whatever they can squeeze. And what we've seen is, you know, people in the UK will know we've had a whole load of these companies going to the wall, including Bulb, who have got 1.7 million customers. Um, I think what we're going to get at some point is an intervention for one of the big tech companies. Um, I know from a friend of mine who was consulted by them as far back as 2009, Google were looking at getting into the market. Um, And I think what a lot of energy companies are absolutely terrified of is that one of the big tech giants will make an inroad into the market. People who, you know, companies that we give our data to and that we trust our data with much more so in many cases than the government. so, yeah, I do think that's coming. And I think we're, we're I don't know how far away, but the time will the, the day will come when individual customers can buy and sell, you know, households can buy and sell energy um, directly between the generators and the grid. Um, and I think one of the biggest disappointments over the last few months has been we've had an opportunity to to build up a publicly owned um, generation asset in the form of a public energy company. Um, that has now been twice promised and twice um uh, reneged on by Nicola Sturgeon um she had her opportunity back in September when Monica Lennon MSP um raised the uh, put a motion to parliament to, to establish a public energy company this is a, a policy that's supported by the vast majority of members of the SNP and the Greens both of those parties voted against that amendment um which was absolutely shocking um, but the, even the the uh, the model that Nicola was talking about um, when she was making her failed promises um, was a retail energy company. And Commonwealth and myself and others have argued for a long time that, no, we need to bring public energy generation and infrastructure back into public ownership. And I'm not going to say that overnight that means totally re- you know, renationalizing everything. It won't happen that way. Um, but if we have assets, um, you know, we can start, you know, using those assets to generate more private investment, to generate more community investment, and to get the whole system working and strategically plan it. Um, And I'm really, really, I'm I'm struggling to be optimistic throughout this whole thing, but I think it's a good deal for those people in Scotland, look at what has been promised by the government and what has actually been delivered and look at the details of it. Um, We need a radical change. And maybe that will come from a company like Google or Apple who do have big, um, who already own large amounts of renewable energy anyway. Um, but we do need, something needs to happen. Um, and I don't think it'll happen in the same way that we've seen in um, the Scandinavian countries, because we, you know, we are so far away from where you guys are.
0: Uh, does Turo Soran just want to come in on that point, just just on biomass and forestry? Because a lot, a lot of people have got quite a bad association with biomass because it so often in Scotland um, has been imported actually, you know, halfway across the world to be burnt. And that has made everybody think, incinerators, no, biomass, no, 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 no. So um, is there something to be said for it? Soren?
1: Um, yes, I think I agree that it's not a good idea to import biomass from the Baltic area, from Canada, from any other country outside your, your own territory. Um, I think biomass has a role if it's like produced within... Uh, kind of the neighborhood of of where you, where you consume it and and I say that mainly because that's what we do so maybe maybe I try to make an excuse for ourselves. but if you look at, at at straw or remains from farm products where we actually plow down like 20% or 30% of the biomass to maintain the microbes and and the biomass in the topsoil which is more or less what the the topsoil can absorb and digest, if you put more biomass in, we have to add more fertilizer to, to make a, 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 a good compost. So the remaining 70%, some is used for bedding for animals and other things also, but we have abundant amounts of it that we can use to bale and put into the furnaces and burn and use for local heating purposes. We take the ashes out of the, of the boiler uh, the compartment, the, the furnace, and then we bring it back to the farms and spread it on the fields because there's still calcium and phosphorus and minerals in it that is useful for the soil. So we only kind of lent the, the carbons uh, uh, while burning it. So the straw absorbs the main, same amount of carbon as it releases when it's burned. And then the, in the addition, to we have a little uh, carbon uh, dioxide uh, emission from the transport, but that's not a lot. So I think it makes sense if it's homegrown and locally produced then then i think we can we can uh, we can be in a responsible way use biomass
0: and you're talking as well about the condition of your soil i mean it's it's lovely to listen because you obviously are still a farming island <laughs> because it's yes. farmers that understand a lot of this circular economy but like, uh, absolutely,
1: absolutely. We, we have a big uh, vegetable production, so farmers are very aware of the condition of the soil. We can't produce high quality vegetables if we don't keep the soil in good condition. So we have to feed the, the micro, uh, uh, microorganisms with, with biomass. So, so, so we need to keep a certain amount of it, but we do a lot of tests and investigations in what's the limit of how much we can take, how much we have to stay, uh, stay in, in, in circulation.
0: Um, Tori, can, I just wonder if you know anything about this, because I was at a, an event run uh, by the Revive Coalition in Scotland who are very concerned about the fact that a, Scot, uh, a fifth of Scotland is a driven grouse moor, it, it with all the strange practices that goes on there, including lots of burning, sometimes poison that's uh, on, on those moors. And, and actually, they're making the point that you can have a view about The the birds and the shooting and hunting, that's to one side. But the the way that soil has been degraded is really, really important. And we don't understand enough that soil, the actual land, is locking in uh, carbon. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't do that when it's damaged. Our peatlands, for example, when they're damaged, they don't lock in.
2: Mm -hmm. Now, it's it's very important what you say. So, of course, biomass is a renewable energy source. But uh, for instance, in Scandinavia, lots of carbon is stored. Actually, not well. Also in the trees, but also lots of carbon is stored in the soil. So, so one should be extremely careful. How, for instance, how what kind of machines one is using? How 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 one is taking out this um, this forest, for instance. And that also has to do with road building. It has to do with if you are draining these bogs or these peats to to make, yeah, park, parking lots or whatever you are making. So then, so this is uh, this is an issue that people are more and more aware of. This how much carbon are actually is stored in the soil and how easy it is to release this into the atmosphere. So that's so that's one thing. And, and then of course, and when it comes to uh, to this usage of forest, it, of course it has also to do with biodiversity. One should be really careful how. How much one is taking out, how how one is doing it. So this, uh, if you're just flapping everything, or if you're just taking out small small patches of of forests, it's um, so it, it is a big issue. But 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 um, I think people are more and more aware of this, more and more concerned about this. Uh, what to say, conservation of nature on the on the one hand, and on the other hand, trying to get more energy out of it. So, it's, uh, but it is a mm-hmm. delicate balance.
0: Okay, we've reached almost the end of our time. Um, I just wanted to finish by asking all the speakers just what for your country do you think is the number one thing? This is really difficult because it's always a basket. I understand that. So you can cheat, but roughly the one thing that you think is the big challenge that you need to crack. So let's start with uh, Soren in
1: Denmark. I think we have two main issues. We we are transporting goods way too much. So transportation uh, and resources is is a really big issue. We we live in a welfare state and we are over consuming, and which means that we are also over transporting. Uh, and 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 we haven't solved that yet. It, it is creating a lot of consumption that is uh, kind of wasted. And I think we should look, look into this in the, in the next paradigm of, of evolution, where we are looking at much more efficient um, uh, ways of living, uh, more, more smart thinking and, and, and looking into the next uh, technology, um, what do you call it, move or, or, or leap uh, that we're waiting for. Transportation is a really big issue.
0: Yeah. Okay. Victoria,
3: Sweden? Um, yes, I'm going to cheat. As you said, there's a basket. Uh, but I would like to mention, firstly, we have to figure out how to replace nuclear power when we come to that. Um, I am convinced that we will be able to do it easily through new technology, through, for example, as I mentioned before, uh, wind power onshore, offshore, solar, uh, solar panels, um, internet of things, how you use your energy and so on. But there is still a debate, not in my backyard. Uh, People are not so keen on, for example, having wind power next door. So that's one thing. And then uh, secondly, we have to speed up the processes for new infrastructure uh, when it comes to building new grids, new network, uh, both nationally within our country and also to other countries because we need to transport more power in our sort of long (laughs) country going from north to south uh, if we are going to make the transition for the transports going from fossils to electricity. Okay, Uh, Keith?
4: Oh God, I'm going to have to get political on it. Um, I think the biggest challenge is the lack of technical knowledge amongst our civil servants and the number of civil servants who have um, previously had jobs in organisations such as the Energy Saving Trust, which is a private not for profit company and notorious for lobbying the, lobbying the Scottish Government to design policies that it then goes on to deliver badly. Um, I think we need to get past the political spin. Um, you know, sorry, but we are not the best small country in the world for energy. We're actually very, very far from it. Um, we need to get away from the, you know, every time somebody like me posts on Twitter critical of, of um, Nicola over energy policy. Yeah, I'm doing that because I've studied it for years and I've even published the odd book on it. Um, we have to be honest with ourselves. We are, you know, we we are lacking in technical capacity in the civil service. Um, and I, I, I actually think we need a proper Green Party. Scotland's
0: problems that go a lot wider than energy issues. Right. So that's, that is the, <laughs> the cheery summary. Although the, the tremendous shame of all of this is listening to Victoria talking about the alternatives that need to come in for nuclear and that baseload that it provides um, is that tidal energy is one of the huge possibilities that has always sat stalled. I say this as someone whose family comes from the Pentland Firth, right at the north of Scotland, that's looking at the fastest tidal stream sites in the whole of Europe and just just never managed to crack how to get tidal into a a commercially deliverable property. Although that is happening, we might lose the companies because they just aren't really getting the the help that they need. So, you know, we've got so much to give in Scotland. It's maddening that we can't seem to get this together. Um, So, Turit, you're going to be on the last word here. Um, Norway, what's the biggest challenge? And you can cheat as well.
2: Well, I can I say two, two, two things actually. So one, one is the oil and gas industry. So that is what is uh, causing our emissions to increase So why, why it hasn't decreased. So that's something, uh, some, so that's number one, I guess. So we know that we, at some point, we will have to phase out, not phase down, but actually phase out the oil and gas industry. Uh, so that's one one issue. And another can issue... Can I interrupt
0: is- you? Sorry, when sorry. I just asked. Yeah. Because it's- how much oil and gas are, are, you, are you... Because you're actually exporting the problem, mostly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So are you meaning that success happens when you just stop using it completely, but hey, you can still keep exporting it? Or is success when you stop exporting and stop drilling?
2: No, so what we have to face it completely out so that, so that they, stop, they stop drilling. So, and when this will happen, I don't know, perhaps in 20 years, perhaps in 30 years, but, but at some, of course also, if, if Europe will su- su- succeed, yeah, if, if Europe will be successful in, uh, in this transition, then of course there will be no buyers for Norwegian oil and gas at some point. So this, so this will happen, but we don't know when, but this, but this is one issue and another issue, and I think I will echo certain is this overconsumption. So, so Norway, Norwegians are extremely rich and we are consuming much, much more than what the rest of the world is or most others in the world um, is consuming. So that is another thing we have to do quality, we have to do recycling, we have to be more like circular economy, so we, we cannot continue to consume as much as we are consuming. So it's simply not it's not big enough planet for this so that's number two and the third one is we still need more renewable energy and that's I think. We, we had lots of plans for, for on, onshore wind, like they have in Sweden, for instance, but that is completely, been uh, completely stopped. It was not, it was not, Yeah. Um, it was so much resistance against it. So now people are looking for offshore wind. So I think offshore wind will be a big thing in Norway and perhaps also floating offshore wind, like the one you have outside, um, outside Scotland, the high wind, high wind Scotland. So this, this is coming now. So I think this will be big in the future.
0: Okay. So it looks like, I think you're very possibly, Denmark is now, Sort of ahead of the pack,
2: mm,
1: maybe
0: that must make you grit your teeth. The rest of you, but is that true? Oh, come on, <laughs> yeah, they're not speaking, they're just going, Yes, but we just don't want to talk about it.
3: <laughs> okay, I, I, can give, I can give Denmark that they they are well ahead when it comes to decentralised district heating and also the usage of wind power because you were definitely pioneers in the Nordics when it comes to wind power. Uh, we've all been inspired by, by, by you, definitely, I would say.
0: But, but I, if I understand it rightly, Denmark has committed to stop drilling and actually Denmark is does have some activity in the North Sea. I think it's mostly for gas, but anyway, let me not push this too far because perhaps I mean maybe it's something that even you know Storin doesn't have all the details on.
1: Well, there is, a, there is a political decision to stop drilling, so so that has been decided. I can't remember what year it is. Maybe it's twenty thirty or something like that.
0: Yeah, uh,
1: they need to finish their their platforms and take them away, so so they they will, will be out of oil by I think it's twenty thirty. Um, mm. but I can look it up. I'm not sure.
0: That's okay. We did, you've, you've done more than enough. Don't worry, we'll look it up. And probably mm. people will be looking up quite a lot. Can I just say, there's been uh, all the way through, Dan has been posting links to quite a number of the things that uh, our Nordic friends have been talking about. So if you are very interested in them, you can just cut and paste, hopefully. And uh, we'll we'll put more links up on the website later at where there'll also be clips of kind of some of the most significant things um, that you've seen here. We'll have them on social media. So if there's anything you want to just send on to people and say, look, you should really listen to this, the, the whole actual discussion will be there as well. So, I mean, really, thank you so much to everybody who also braved the technology at the beginning. And by gum, do we need to have a little rehearsal the next time? <laughs> but anyway, I'm so glad that you persevered for us. Thanks to the Nordic Horizons team. And I was going to say safe home, but you're all in your homes. (laughs) So thank you very much and good night.